You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Our reading this evening comes from Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 through 11. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded, the tent of meeting and the ark of testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pier lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basins and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we do now pray that you would lift our hearts to Jesus, uh, that we would be more and more the people that you would have us be, Uh, workers in your temple. We pray for these things now in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, It's good to see you, everyone. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, uh, the Lord has provided a beard this week, uh, so I'm glad to keep my face warm. When I was a kid, I used to pray that one day the Lord would give me a mustache like my Uncle Mike's. My dad didn't have a mustache, but Uncle Mike had a mustache, and maybe one day the Lord would be kind and be, be the kind of God that would provide a mustache. Uh, and look, here he has, he's given me hair on my face. Uh, anyway, uh, if you're visiting with us tonight, you have joined us for one of just the best possible days that you could have joined us this year. Uh, at the end of the service tonight, as Clint said, we're gonna baptize two folks in, this, in these waters over here to baptize, to proclaim what God has done through Christ Uh, and through the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, If you're visiting with us tonight, uh, you perhaps uh, just stood up as you heard Dan read some really weird things about like utensils and stuff. I was like, what is this? Uh, Well, we've been walking through the entire book of Exodus over the past many months together. Uh, And here we are, and now the building of the tabernacle. We saw throughout this whole book that because God has made Uh, covenant promises to a particular person many, many hundreds of years prior to this, the guy named Abraham, and to his family, that he would not leave this family to be enslaved in Egypt, but he brought them out. Not just that they would experience a life of freedom to now live however they'd like, but to experience life for the freedom which God had created them to live in. The life for which they and all humanity was created to live into, that of knowing and worshiping God. So they received the law, they received the expectation of life to be lived with God and with one another, 
And now God is giving them some very weird and specific instructions for a strange tent called the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a mobile temple. It's a, it's a temple that Israel can pack up and move around as they move around. And it's God's presence, it's in this tabernacle that God's presence will now live and dwell and move with his people. The tabernacle is over and over again meant to remind them of Eden, the place where once things were in perfect relationship with God and with one another. And so for the next four chapters, we're going to get through four chapters this evening. Four chapters, we're going to see even more of what we saw beginning last week of what might seem weird and tedious. I mean, there are even instructions for the priest's underwear and how they are to wear, what they're to wear. And like, then there's incense and oil, the very specific kind of oil and how and when it's to be used and all of these things. But just like last week, there is much, much to be learned for us tonight in Exodus 28 through 31. And what we find and learn is meant to actually change our lives, to change our eternity. So tonight we're gonna get a 30,000 foot flyover of these last instructions by thinking through them in three sections. That of what the priest wore, what the priest did, and then what the people did. So first of all, what the priest wore. If it wasn't clear from the subtitle that I've given to this section, chapter 28 is just all about clothes. That's all it's about. It's like a head-to-toe catalog of what an Israelite priest was to look like. I almost picture like, like when a college football team gets a new look or something, they, they rebrand their uniform and they call a press conference. Uh, it's really not much of a press conference. It's just mostly like a modeling show. Uh, they get some like 21-year-old kid uh, to come out in the new uniform and then to walk the runway while they all uh, take pictures of it and see the new uniform from like helmet to cleats. And this is what this is. Chapter 29 is exactly like that, uh, for us to know and understand what the priest is to look like. But it's not just a descriptor. It's not, uh, it's not only that this is how every priest is to dress from now on, but it is to distinguish a priest in Israel as set apart. After all, like if you were, if you were like walking down Central up, up a couple blocks uh, after our service this evening and you're walking down the sidewalk and somebody behind you yells, hey you, stop! Like you, you might look behind you and then you might decide to stop or not. If it was just some person, you're like, nah man, like I got things to do. Uh, you might not stop. But if someone yelled at you, hey you, stop, and you turned around and it's an Albuquerque police officer dressed in his uniform, uh, then it would be wise for you to stop, right? Uh, the uniform is the thing that has signified this police officer's role and vocation. Uh, and it's the same here. We won't go through every article of clothing, but another point of these garments uh, is not to just set apart and distinguish the role and vocation of a priest, but to resemble the tabernacle itself. There are blues and purples and scarlets Linen, cords, gold, chains, all of these are part of the priestly garments, the uniform, all of it. The priest is a little microcosm of the tabernacle itself. We saw all of these things last week in the, the construction of the temple. The priest is a little tabernacle as he's walking around amongst the people outside of the tabernacle. He is set apart and devoted to a life of service and worship to the Lord. And then there are instructions given for the high priest. In this first generation, the high priest was Moses' brother, Aaron. In later generations, it would be Aaron's sons and then descendants. Uh, do we have a picture here? 
Uh, man, we're just going two weeks in a row of pictures, everybody. How excited are we? Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, the high priest is to wear a multicolored checkered ephod. This is like the apron that you see. An ephod is just kind of, it's like, kind of like a uh, soccer penny, a little overgarment uh, that you wear on top of your clothes. Uh, and chapter 28, verses 7 through 14, explain that on the shoulders of the ephod are to be two uh, golden shoulder plates with then two jewels on either side. And on each jewel is to be written six of the names of Israel. So six on this side and six on this side. Six of the, or 12, the 12 tribes of Israel. So all 12 names of the tribes of Israel on his shoulders. Uh, these are Jacob's 12 sons from the book of Genesis. So the priest represents all of Israel as he walks with their names over his shoulder. And then over the ephod, the high priest is to wear a breastplate or a breast piece. It's a square thing with all of these jewels. And here also, there are now 12 different jewels, each jewel with the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel engraved or maybe scratched into the jewel. So now the priest not only bears all 12 names of each tribe on his shoulder, but then over his very heart. So why would God have the high priest wear all this stuff? Is it just kind of like a mom who like has a necklace with like all the birthstones of her kids or something? It's really sweet and precious. The priest just has like a special place in his heart for all of the children of Israel or something. Well, not exactly. If, the, if this is all what the priest wears and all the lower priests alike just not wearing this ephod and the, the breastplate, uh, now what do the priests do? What the priests did? So to first consecrate themselves, to set them apart for priestly service, Aaron's sons, beginning in chapter 29, are to gather at the altar outside of the tent. Do we have this picture from last week again? All right, here's a modern-day recreation of a model of the tabernacle. Uh, and like we thought through last week, if you walk through these outer um, walls, these outer drapes, the very first thing you would see when you walk in through this outer wall is the, 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 the altar. It is about four feet high, and it would dominate your vision as you walked into these outer courts. The, the priests in chapter 29 are to all gather around outside of the altar uh, because not only are they themselves sinful humans, they are human beings who do not love God with all their heart, heart soul, strength, and mind. They do not love their neighbor as themselves. Uh, they, but not only that, but their priestly work is tainted, tainted by impurity and selfishness. But because they are humans, they live in a world of sickness. They live in a world of death. They live in a world of corruption. And so they are to be made consecrated. They are to be made holy. Now, what does this mean? Does this God is going to now make them to where they never make a mistake again. They never sin again in their whole life. No, this isn't what consecration means. Consecration, uh, or being made holy, is a major theme of Exodus. It's really a, a major theme of the entire Bible. That God has created humanity out from the ground. He has created humanity from nature, from the natural world. And yet God is transcendently outside of the world. He is super outside, above nature. He is supernatural. And yet God has created humanity. We like, we dirt bags, right? We're made from the dirt. That's all we are. We're just walking, talking dirt bags. Uh, he has made us not only to exist and to live, but to partner with him in his 
uh, rule and reign on earth. This is unbelievable. The supernatural God has created natural humans to be his image bearers and to uh, make his kingdom known and flourish in the natural world. But that he would, but not only that, that he would call us into partnership, but that he would transform our dirtbag bodies, our bodies, our lives that are weak, that are susceptible to sickness and to death and decay, he would transform those bodies and our very existence and reality into the eternal, into the incorruptible, that humans would actually be made like him. This is a major theme of the entire Bible, and it's unbelievable. And so, in returning the priesthood, like we thought through last week in the tabernacle, into a glimmer of the priestly work that Adam was uh, participating with God in, in Genesis 1 and 2, the people, or the priests, are taken out from the people, and they are cleansed. They are set apart through blood and through washing. A bull is sacrificed as a burnt offering, a total and comprehensive offering to God. And then uh, all of the priests will gather around and they will all put both hands on two different rams that are then sacrificed to God. It is, it is gory and it is bloody, but this is the way in which their sin, in which their decay, their susceptibility to death is now being ceremonially absorbed in the death of these animals. It's as if the tabernacle, like certainly the most holy place that we thought through last week, is like a nuclear reactor. It's a nuclear reactor producing energy, producing life for the people. And there's nothing inherently bad about plutonium, right? What makes plutonium dangerous uh, is our natural state, our state of susceptibility to the power and energy of plutonium that makes plutonium dangerous to us. And so the priests, they're, they're like gearing up. They're going through this entire washing and cleansing process that like any nuclear scientist would. And then here in the priestly garments, they're like putting on the hazmat suit. Several other sacrifices are described and given, and then we read in 29, chapter 29, verse 37, seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. So it's not just that like God redeems some people out of slavery because it wasn't cool that they were doing some things and building some things that they didn't want to build, and they were experiencing uh, uh, wickedness in the world, and so he just wanted to get them out of that so that they could then do what they wanted to. No, he saved them to transform them. He saved them to transform their worship and to change their very hearts, to make them vessels and conduits of life. Because check out the flow of the instructions here. Out from a uh, sinful and corruptible people, God calls a few, the priests, out for consecration. They are cleansed, they are transformed, not so they can just uh, live a wonderfully comfortable life and just read the Bible in, uh, in their kitchens with a cup of coffee or something. That's great too. Uh, but representing the people on, on their behalf and then working as the people's intercessor, the people's mediator with the people's names on their heart. The high priests and then the other priests work so that the other people might know and worship God. Out of the sinful, deathly, uh, decaying dirt bags. God calls some priests that he might sanctify them, that he might make them holy. And how are they made holy? Well, by being near God, 
those who touch the altar, those who uh, receive holiness and life from them. He makes them holy and full of life. That then God's holiness and life then might flow back to the people, to the dirt bags. It goes this way, and then it goes this way, and then through this dirtbag nation of Israel, then life and joy and holiness and uh, consecration to God might flow to the rest of the dirtbag world, to the created natural world. God is filling nature, is filling the world, is filling humanity with his glory and his holiness through this uh, priestly work. But check out who the main subject is in all of this. The end of Exodus 29. How does all this happen? God says, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, Yahweh, their God. God is the one who is saving a people, who is consecrating a people, that is giving life and holiness to a people. And yet, what the high priest did every year, and then kept having to do, and kept having to do, and kept having to do every year, wasn't sufficient to transformatively cleanse. What the high priest did on the people's behalf in sacrifice was enough to like give them a hazmat suit was enough to make it so that they wouldn't die in the presence of God. But it wasn't enough to transform them into very people who could now live and be completely energized by the plutonium rather than destroyed by it. So last week we considered what a couple of the New Testament writers thought of this whole tabernacle system. After the life and death and resurrection and then ascension of Jesus, some of these New Testament writers were now thinking, what in the world has just happened? This man who we originally thought was a prophet of God was crucified, was executed on a Roman cross, was died and buried, and then came back to life, and then we saw him ascend to heaven. What's going on with this? And they looked back on this whole thing, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and saw the tabernacle system. It's like as if the sun was setting on Good Friday, as Jesus hung there on the cross, the sun is behind him, and the, the shadow that, get ca- that gets cast on the ground is like the shadow of a tent. Jesus hanging on the cross, and there on the ground is the outer courts and the temple, the temple tabernacle system. The author of the letter to the Hebrews thinks that the tabernacle is actually an earthly copy of something more eternal, more heavenly. RGC, we thought through this, Hebrews 9, RGC was thinking through this on Tuesday, and uh, they were just telling me that I should just read all of Hebrews 9 and then just sit down and be done with the sermon, because Hebrews 9 is just a sermon on Exodus 25 through 31. You should read it. It's amazing, the whole thing. Uh, But just listen to a little bit here. The the, the writer has been talking about all the blood and all of the rooms and all of the utensils in the tabernacle. And then he begins to say this in verse 23. He says, thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. He's saying all of the things that are in the tabernacle, these are the copies 
of the heavenly things. It was necessary for them to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Better sacrifices than just what Aaron and the priests are doing with these bulls and rams. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, not the tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Amen. I could just sit down. Sit down and be done. You should just go, tonight, go, go home and read all of Hebrews 9. It'll blow your mind now thinking through what we thought through. But last week, we said that Jesus is the, the whole tabernacle system. Remember, he is the mobile temple structure walking around, this mobile temple walking around in and amongst his people. He's the presence of God dwelling with his people, and he represents all of it. He is the bread. He is the light, the water, all of it. And we've often thought about Jesus as the Lamb of God. He is a bloody sacrifice who dies on his people. But now, in Hebrews 9, the author of the Hebrews is just like mixing up all kinds of metaphors because he is the bloody sacrifice, but he is also the high priest which makes the sacrifice. He works on behalf of the people in consecrated and holy worship as their intercessor, as their mediator. He works in worships, in purity, and in Life with the names of his people on his heart as he works. Jesus did not go to the cross to make you savable. Jesus went to the cross with names on his heart, with very names of people in Albuquerque 2,000 years later, of people in Southeast Asia 1,500 years later, of perhaps people in Northern Europe 3,000 years from now. Who knows? But he has his people that he has gone to the cross to save. And if you're trusting in him with your life, you can actually and confidently sing like we often do. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. For I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. If you are trusting in Christ, he has your name, not just like hypothetically, like some other person in the world who also shares your name, but yours, graven in his hands and written on his heart. Not because of your holiness, not because of your perfect and spotless life, your spotless worship, but because of his and if that's true, then we can actually and confidently dwell in the reality that before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, interceding now on our behalf, working as our priest and our friend. 
So Christian, you experience life and joy in God not because of the things that you do to earn your life and joy in God. The triune God himself has grabbed hold of his people eternally, and he has ripped them out of slavery. He has secured them in salvation. And so we find value and rest and security not in what we do, but in who we are. Not in who we are apart from the work of Christ in our life, but in who we are in united to the life of Christ. So because Jesus has acted on behalf of his people, if this is true, then now he has graven our names on his hands and written them on our hearts. So now we can just live and do whatever we'd like to for the rest of our lives, right? Well, not quite. Let's look at our last section here and what the people did. We'll think at more depth about this last section after the new year when we get through chapters 35 and 41, because you haven't flipped ahead to the back of the book yet. It's spoiler. It's just a repeat of everything we've done. Now just the people actually following these instructions. But there are taxes here in chapter 30. Chapter 31, there are contributions made toward the tabernacle. And then we meet two very interesting guys that you heard Dan read about in chapter 31. There is Aholiab and Bezalel. And these are the guys uh, that are actually doing the work of the construction of the temple. But who are they? Well, we don't really know. The most we get is that they are craftsmen. And while we don't get their backstory, it's probably not too much of a stretch to assume that they had grown in their craftsmanship working in Egypt. Like, who knows, maybe Aholiab and Bezalel, as slaves in the service of the worship of Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods, had previously used their, craft, craft, their crafty skills uh, to build Egyptian temples, to build Egyptian idols. Who knows? And now here they are. They are freed from their worship of slavery. They are instead now consecrated with their same skills in the worship of Yahweh for not some Egyptian temple, not for some worship of some Egyptian God, but for the temple and the worship of God. And the mention of the Spirit here is equally important. Before this week, uh, would you have been able to answer the question, who is the very first person in the Bible who is filled with the Spirit? Who is filled with the Spirit of God? I think a case could be made for Adam. Or you might be tempted to say, probably Abraham or Moses, maybe Joshua or one of the later judges, like Samson or something, maybe a king, David, or a prophet like Isaiah or Ezekiel. But no, it's, it's these guys. There's something remarkably profound to find out that the answer is a pretty forgettable craftsman that is first filled with the Spirit. A guy named Bezalel, and then some other craftsmen like him. Look at 31, starting in verse 2 again, where God says, See, I have called by name, by name, Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. So like we saw last week, 
Here again, there is some really interesting themes of recreation going on. Just like in Genesis 1 and 2, when God first built the temple of his presence in the the cosmos, like the cosmic temple of God's presence, the universe, through the work of the Spirit, the breath of the Spirit of God that's hovering over the waters in Genesis 1. Now, the Spirit of God has made a return appearance. And the Spirit of God returns to create the new temple of God, the tabernacle. And this time through not just the word of God, but through his people. God is dignifying good blue-collar work here. He is dignifying and celebrating work that is done with people's hands for his glory. He uses and transforms skills that were probably uh, cultivated and learned in slavery in Egypt, and he is transforming these skills to now be for God and for the good and enjoyment of his people. So I'm glad that we have these guys' names here, that we have this example of transformed, uh, spirit-filled, and inspired work to God's glory. We should not underemphasize how important and dignifying Aholiab and Bezalel's work filled by the Spirit is for our understanding of going to work each day, for our understanding of our work and vocation as worship. But I'm kind of all right with these guys like having largely forgettable names and stories. Not that it won't be very interesting to one day uh, sit down and talk about all of the things that they did uh, in constructing the tabernacle. But I'm all right with it being largely forgettable because the story is not about Aholiab and Bezalel and about their unbelievable skill. The story is about the Spirit's work through them through what God has accomplished through his people. And then their reality of these two guys becoming the huge reality for the entire church, beginning in Acts 2. Not just of a couple of individuals receiving the spirit for the construction of the tabernacle, but now every single one of God's people receiving the spirit, the the breath of God, the third person of the triune God to now energize, to give life, to motivate, to correct, to guide, to inspire all of us as we work together to build the new temple of God, the church. The Spirit of God is vital, is necessary, is indispensable to our work in our building up of the church, to our worship as individuals and corporately. But even through the transformation of the Spirit, even through the work of Christ, our great high priest, we as Christians don't just receive a vocation like a holy ab and Bezalel of constructing the temple. All Christians receive a new vocation as priests, not just as those building the temple, but the actual priestly workers. Throughout the centuries, this doctrine sometimes gets called the priesthood of all believers. So 2 Corinthians 5 describes our vocation Christ Church, if you're a Christian, this is your vocation now as an intermediary role. You have a ministry of reconciliation to the world, offering the forgiveness of God and the reconciliation of Christ to the world. 1 Peter 2 spells out that the church is a royal priesthood who is to offer up spiritual sacrifices wholly acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If Christians are united to Christ, our tabernacle through faith, and he has given us full and final and 
free access to the Father, and he has now given us a new vocation as his priestly temple workers, then it's as if our entire lives are now lived out in the temple complex or the tabernacle complex. Logan, you got that picture again? Sorry, I didn't tell you this we're going to do. It's as if our lives are lived out within this complex, the whole of our lives. Lives of devoted, consecrated worship, very near to the presence of God. And not just near the presence of God, but filled with the presence of God. As Paul will later go on and talk about we as Christians, our bodies being the very temple of God, filled with his presence. Lives of devoted, consecrated worship. So here's a question for us to consider. Is that area of life, whatever that area of your life may be, is that area of your life appropriate to be lived out as a priestly tabernacle worker? Or the very tabernacle itself? I hesitate to ask with specifics, but should you watch? Should you listen? Should you read that? Should you speak that way? Should you react that way? Should you behave that way? Should you even imagine in that way? Not because if you speak, act, imagine in this kind of holy way, God will be pleased with you and save you or something. No, the people have already been consecrated, been made holy, been found access to God through the free sacrifice of the ram and the bull here, and then we even more through the blood of Christ. But now, having been saved, having been brought near, now as his priestly temple workers, he has saved us to worship saved us. Our whole life as a Christian is now lived out in his presence for his glory, for our own increasing joy, and for the good of the unbelieving world around us. And this is the good news of the gospel. The gospel is about justification. It is about being made right before God. It is about having your sins forgiven. And if you are with us tonight and you would not consider yourself a Christian or you're not sure if you have had your sins forgiven, you, your conscience has been speaking out against you for the last few weeks or years or your entire life, or perhaps your conscience hasn't been speaking against you, but you're perhaps thinking maybe it should. If you are not right before God, if you are not um, confident of your access to God, knowing him as Father, the gospel is about making sinners right, about adopting sons and daughters, and about for the forgiveness of sins. But the even better news, I think we shortchange the gospel as certainly American Western Christians, that it is just about having your sins forgiven. That's a great starting point. That's a wonderful starting point. But the better news is, is that he has not just come to wipe the slate clean and give us a second chance or something, but that he has come to give us the whole Christ he has come to make us completely holy. That our salvation is actually about our sanctification. About our joyful worship unto our God and King who has created us, who has lived and died for us, who has redeemed and saved us, and now set us firmly and fully into a life of unity with the whole Christ. And that his life becomes our life. And this is the newly created reality of God's people that of a consecrated priesthood that would work for his worship, for our own joy, and for the good of the world. A newly created people. 
And chapter 31 wraps up this seven-day new creation week with a day of rest. Just like in Genesis 1 and 2, chapter 31 ends with the Sabbath again. The people together are to set aside time to be with each other and to live with devoted worship for that day. Now, Clint already helped us think through the nature of the Sabbath and understanding the fourth commandment. And while the Sabbath has certainly found its full and final rest in Christ, we now daily experience rest and peace in Christ and rest and peace with one another every day of our life, not just in one day of the week. But there is a real reality that something different is happening when all of God's people gather together as his new creation people as a collective group of temple workers, not just isolated temple workers, as a collective group of uh, bricks no longer isolated, but are built up on one another uh, as the temple of the Lord. So we come together on Sundays, not as a new Sabbath, but in resolved commitment to each other and to God to experience and to remind ourselves that God dwells with his people. Amen? I appreciate the theological move over the past 20 years or so that some folks have emphasized that the church is a people and not a building. That is absolutely true. This happens to be an old historic church building, but we could meet in the park. This building is not the church. And folks have tried to encourage others and that the church is who you are and it is not where you go. You don't go to church. You are the church. All that's true. I'm afraid that there might be some false dichotomies being built, though, in our understanding of what the church is. The word church literally means the assembly, the congregation, as Clint showed us in Exodus 24. The church is the church when it assembles together. We are certainly Christians, and we belong in covenant membership with each other, if you're a member here, when we're at our houses. But something is happening when we assemble together. So yes and amen, let's be the church throughout the week, not just on Sundays, but there is no church apart from meeting together as the church. Not to say that we never miss a Sunday. It's never that all of us will make all 52 Sundays a year or something. But the idea and thinking that like, my church is just the mountains or my church is the baseball fields or whatever else, this is a category that is completely foreign to the Bible. The church is when people gather, is when they assemble together. They're built up together in the worship and service of God and to one another, not just having a, like an existential experience of God. So brothers and sisters, Christians, fellow temple workers and priests of the Lord God, our whole lives are lives of worship. But let's resolve here anew to meet together on Sundays, to be with one another, This new creation, first day of the week, to remind ourselves and to remind each other that God dwells with us. All right, so this is the tabernacle. This is the tabernacle. If you've still got questions that are tumbling around about the tabernacle, uh, well, hang in there because uh, the last six chapters of Exodus are also, also about the tabernacle. So we'll be back. We'll be back. But for now, we're going to celebrate what God has done in recreation, that he has taken two dirt bags and he has made them right before him and he has begun the work of transforming their dirt bag life into the incorruptible for eternity. 
two new members of our church. So let me pray for that time, and then we'll hear from Love and from Alex. Our God, we are thankful that you have created the universe, that you have created a temple for your presence to uh, not only dwell in, but to be made great in. We're thankful that you have created humanity and that you have not given up on humanity, that we daily rebel against you, that we daily desire to live our own way and even perhaps subconsciously or even consciously uh, act as if you don't exist and wish that you didn't exist. And yet, your kindness and your mercy are immeasurable. Your love to reconcile sinners, your, your love to pursue sinners, to forgive sinners, to adopt sinners as your sons and daughters with our names on your heart and in your hands, Lord Jesus, as you died, as you bled, as you were buried, and as you were raised to new life, that you would give us uh, your new life, your resurrection, that you would transform us for eternity. So God, we do pray for our new brother and sister, Alex and Love. We pray that you would use their life and testimony to encourage us we pray that you would do the same with us for them and that you would be growing us more and more as the place of your dwelling for your glory, for our own growing and increasing joy and uh, experience of you and for the good of the unbelieving world around us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.